From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 20, Lore and Ladders. Happy New Year, everyone. This is the first episode of The Spiel for 2007. Hope everybody had a, a good New Year. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. And welcome. Uh, hope the holiday season treated everyone well. We've uh, certainly raked in a few good, oh, new, yeah, baby. <laughs> good new games, and and we're ready and raring to go. We've got so many new games to play, it's pathetic, but yeah, you know, that's a good just, problem to have. The list just ballooned. <laughs> Not that it wasn't already huge, but yeah. <laughs> man. So before we got we dive right in, we thought we might discuss some of the, the games that showed up under the tree, just just because it's fun to know what other people got, yeah, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's awesome. So I, I had, I, I raked in, uh, I think I got upwards of a dozen New game. Some of the highlights were I got uh, Drunten Druber, which is a Spiel de Jahr winner from like 1991. Ah, looks cool. looks really cool. Uh, I got Blue Moon City, which we awesome. saw at Gen Con, yep. which looks really cool. Marvel Heroes, which that's you know it's yeah comic book stuff. How can that be bad? That's <laughs> that looks really cool. I I haven't had my own copy of Runebound, so now I have oh, my nice. own copy. I've played it several times, but didn't have my own copy. Um, I got Mutiny, another pirate game. Looks really cool. Can never have enough pirate games. Arr. Ever. <laughs> um, and then probably the, the piece de resistance was I uh, got uh, my own copy of the Tudor Electric Football Ooh. game, the little <laughs> game you know, with the electric stuff. So those that's kind of the highlights for my, uh, my haul for the Christmas Sweet. season. Uh, what about you? I got all kind of goodies. <laughs> I'll go ahead and leave the part about the socks and underwear out. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to know about the uh, thong that I got with dice on it. Oh, man. <laughs> if you're watching the Enhanced Podcast, shut your eyes. Exactly. Step away from your iPod. <laughs> um, I got a copy of Battlelore. Awesome. Great. Yep. I also got a copy of Marvel Heroes, which is, can't wait to play that puppy. Yep. I finally got my own copy of Wits and Wagers. Uh, played, yes. played it several times, but now I have my own copy. Um, I got a custom-made cornhole set, <laughs> themed oh, that's Indianapolis right. Colts. I knew that. I knew that. You, I knew, that. you knew that? Uh-huh. Tiffany you, uh, you consulted bastard. with me. <laughs> that's the second time you've known about something. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So I'm stoked about that. As soon as it gets nicer, I can't wait to dig that out. And last but not least, I got the Settlers 3D 10th Anniversary Collector's Edition. <laughs> Crazy. My wife, Roberta... My great friend in Pennsylvania, Mark, my evil co-host, Stephen, and his cohort, Francie, all threw in together to get me this, and I had no clue whatsoever. We bamboozled him, and he is a hard man to fool, let yeah, me tell I you. Had, had no idea until Christmas morning that I was getting that, and then I was like, woohoo, dancing around in circles. Now, the unfortunate thing is, I do remember an earlier podcast where I said something about anybody who got this for Christmas would... Have to kiss some serious booty. <laughs> so to Roberta, Mark, Stephen, and Francie, <laughs> that's for you guys. That's my serious booty kissing. <laughs> well, it was uh, well deserved, and uh, I'm I'm just looking forward to oh, getting to play it. <laughs> I can't wait to dig that puppy out. Of course, you know I've been digging through it, 
It is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, enough uh, going on about our loot. We just thought you might be interested in hearing about that, uh, our haul for this season. So um, let us know what, what you all uh, found under the tree or in the holiday season. We'd, we'd love to Heck know yeah. what you all scored. Um, so I think it's time that we just dive right in and get started with the, the newest episode for the new year. Game News and Notes. I'd like to let everybody know about a game magazine that's been out for a while called Games Quarterly Magazine. I know we've discussed Knucklebones in the past, right? and we might even mention Games Quarterly a couple times, but I want to reiterate it here with a little more detail because they're doing something cool that I think everybody needs to know about. The last two magazines that they've put out have had expansions for either Settlers of Catan or Carcassonne, and they haven't been just like written-up expansions. These are actually component the, the components are the same size, color, and quality as the original games. And they're really, really cool. Uh, the one that came out a couple go, couple magazine issues ago was The Great Rivers of Catan. Then they put out one that has 12 new basic tiles for Carcassonne. The reason why I mention this is they're running a special right now. Usually, I believe... Gamers Quarterly comes out four times a year. Go figure. <laughs> but if you sign up now, they will, in addition to the four upcoming issues, they will include the last two back issues, which have these oh, game nice. expansions in it. And the next three to come out also have game expansions. The next one is going to have something called Fisherman of Catan. The one after that is going to be a Rio Grande's game expansion, hmm. and the one after that is going to be another Mayfair game expansion. In addition to that, you're going to get their annual Educators issue, which has a lot of really neat, interesting games and how they associate, you know, how they relate to education. So I just think it's a really cool... I, I think I lean towards enjoying Knucklebones better, but um, the Gamers Quarter magazine has a lot of really cool stuff, and there's especially one article that I read every time <laughs> that's by James Ernest that is yeah. <laughs> just... It's this little column. It's only one page long, but I think it's worth the whole magazine. <laughs> well, and that's certainly incentive to subscribe if oh, they're going to continue to... Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the magazine may not be all that, but if you get the cool game add-ons, that's yeah, exactly. almost reason I, to get it I alone. I think um, in the U.S., an annual <clears throat> subscription is 30 bucks. Canada, 38 bucks. Overseas, 60 bucks. You know, and that's for a whole year. And like I said, that's five of them with, like, honest-to-goodness, real official, you know, expansions Components. for these games. Yeah, that's, so yeah, that's definitely I, worth it. I think that'd be awesome. Now, I pick mine up in a local gaming store and just get them month by month. Right. But I don't think everybody's going to be that lucky yeah. to have a game store that it's carries those. So. <laughs> obscure enough that it's, you might exactly. have a harder time finding so it. So check the magazine out. and We'll put, we'll put a like link to the, to the website in the show notes so you'll cool. have a direct way to, to subscribe and do that stuff. So. Sweet. Awesome information. <laughs> uh, so my uh, news and notes for this week is uh, a game that's probably going to ruffle a few people's feathers, <laughs> that's for sure. <clears throat> the uh, game is called War on Terror. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, published in 2006, uh, and it's very new. It came out just the very end of, of 2006. Andrew Sheeran and Andrew Tompkins are the designers. Um, they're also, the, I think, the owner-operators of their own game company, Terror Bull Games. Um, they're based out of the UK. Uh, this game is a two-to-six-player game. I think it's probably a two-hour game. And you can find it over here. It's a, it's a British-made game, but I've found a couple American retailers for around 40 bucks um, that are selling it. 
So the goal of War on Terror, the board game, is to liberate the world, ridding it of fear and terrorism forever. Naturally, only the biggest and strongest empires are up to this task, and so a certain amount of dominance is needed to be proved. Alternatively, you can play as the terrorists, fighting <laughs> for a world without empires. Everyone starts the game as an empire, with a couple of free villages they can settle anywhere in the world. Empires are then going to spread over the planet, grabbing all available land and searching for the best oil and most strategic borders. But sooner or later, someone's going to take a pop. Maybe the axis of evil has been declared, or the empire of evil uh, card has come up, giving people a few terrorist cards, which are just too tempting not to play. <laughs> maybe someone is already looking too strong, or maybe you've just got a grudge against somebody from a previous game that you just don't want to win. Either way, war is declared at some point in the game, and the terrorists strike begins. Terrorist cool. strikes begin. <laughs> Although it's possible to win the game with all the players still playing as empires, the more likely outcome is that the empires are destroyed, bankrupted, or simply cave in and become terrorist players. As more empires fall, um, all the players at a certain point, you can just decide to flip side and say, okay, I'm not a That's government it. anymore, I'm a terrorist. And every single person in the game can decide to do that, and then you work towards a terrorist victory. So they all sort of become a That's team player, cool. trying to work towards this new this new goal. Um, the game comes with a giant global map board, a back balaclava, which is basically a big <laughs> ski mask with the word "evil" <laughs> stitched over the top of it. Oh my um, god! <laughs> it has uh, oil, empire, radiation, terrorist counters, dice, and a secret message pad for sending notes to your terrorist uh -huh. cohorts. I'm sure that I'm gonna we're gonna get some mail about this game because this game is certainly not gonna appeal to everyone. It's completely politically incorrect, but that's absolutely what I love about it. Exactly. Uh, it deals with a very serious subject in a satirical, but in my opinion, interesting and intelligent way. It reminds me a lot of nuclear war, actually. Right. In its day and age, nuclear war uh, made total global destruction into a game that was hilarious, fun to play, and at the same time made a great point about the pointlessness of trying to win a nuclear war. Namely, most of the time, everyone gets blown up. From the reviews I've read about this game, um, it's definitely not just a game that has a political axe to grind. So to me, that sounds like a recipe for fun and a way to give maybe a different context to the world events that might get you thinking, as well as having right. fun around the table. So I, I would encourage, I, I'm thinking about ordering this pretty soon, because like it just sounds like yeah. a, a hoot exactly. and something that should be on our on our list for sure. So... Um, I'll take note of that right now. <laughs> Check out The War on Terror. The List. Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. Okay, the first game off the list tonight is Lexio Black Box Edition. It was published by DeGoy in 2005. Unfortunately, the designer's uncredited, and that makes a lot of sense. It's based on Zing Shang Yu, which is the ancient Chinese ladder game. So it's for three to five players. It's ages eight and up. And the only place I've been able to find this is funagaingames.com, and it runs 40 bucks. And whether they have it in stock, 
is rather iffy all the time too. So it's kind of hard to get a hold of. Um, I'll give you a quick overview of the components. Um, that's what attracted me to the game first before <laughs> Def- I even knew what the game definitely. was about. Definitely. Um, it comes with 60 full-color etched black tiles. And they are just gorgeous. They're gorgeous to look at. They're gorgeous to hold. Um, you also get 70 plastic point chips, which are a little bit on the cheap side. Yeah. So when we played it, we substituted some nice, heavy casino-style chips, which made the feel of the game even that much better. And then also you get five reference cards. Um, the object of the game is to be the player, the first player to get rid of all your tiles. Um, basically, the tiles come in four suits. You have blue clouds, yellow stars, green moons, red suns, and they're magically delicious. <laughs> you totally beat me to it. I was going to say exactly. that. Exactly. You can't not say that. Um, each suit has tiles numbered from 1 to 15. The, the unique thing is that they're ranked in order from 3 to 15 and then 1 and 2. So 2 is actually the highest numbered tile in the game. 1 is the second highest, then 15 all the way down to 3, which is pretty cool. Um, the g- game is divided into a series of hands. Uh, the first player um, for each hand starts the game by leading a tile combination to the center of the table. The combinations in this game can be made up of one tile, two tiles, three tiles, or five tiles. No such thing as a four-tile combination. A one-tile combination is pretty simple. It's just a single tile. Two tiles is a pair of tiles. Three is three of a kind. And then five are combinations more like we think of in poker. Straights and flushes and full houses and stuff like that. Um, Basically, let's, let's assume like I play a pair of fives to lead. For the next player to be able to play tiles out of his hand, he has to follow two simple rules. First of all, you have to play a like quantity of tiles. So if I lead two, the only way for you to play tiles out of your hand is to play two, two tiles. And then you have to be able to beat my two tiles, which you can also do in two different ways. Right. <laughs> the simplest way is if I play a pair of fives, you can play a pair of sixes or sevens all the way up to ones and twos because those are high too. And it doesn't have to be sequential. So no. if you play fives, I could play tens. Yep, exactly, anything. Then the other way is that you could actually play a second pair of fives because the colors and the suits also have a hierarchy and those break ties. So if I play a pair of fives and you have a pair of fives that has one of the fives that is a higher valued suit, then you could beat my hand that way. Of course, somebody could turn around and immediately play a pair of sixes and just dust your fives off anyway. (laughs) But those are the ways to get rid of your cards. Um, If it ever comes to you and you can't or don't wish to play any tiles, you can just pass and you haven't opted out of the turn because it can come back to you later on because you just keep going around and around until everybody's passed in a row, and then it's time to push those tiles aside, and the person who had the latest one in another round starts. So it's a really, really simple game. There's a couple wacky rules that I think set this apart from all the other ladder-style games that we're familiar with. Um, The first one is that the the number one tile is kind of wacky (laughs) in that you can use it as the last number of a straight that ends with the number 15 tile. (laughs) <laughs> so it kind of almost so it wraps, wraps around, around. exactly. Kind of like an ace. It, exactly. Um, so in this game, the highest runs, the the best run that you can get is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. The second highest is 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. But the third highest, all of a sudden, is 12, 13, 14, 15, 1, <laughs> which is kind of hard to think of, yeah. but, but it's really cool. Um, the other really neat thing with the game is the scoring. The scoring is much more... 
similar to a Mahjong type of scoring than any other ladder games that I've played. Um, each player pays the winner of the hand a number of chips equal to the number of tiles that they have left in their hand. So if I go out, Stephen has five tiles left, boom, he just owes me five chips. Pretty easy. But we go even one step further. <laughs> the um, person in third place will pay, in addition to playing the winner, they will pay the person in second place a difference in chips, or a number of chips equal to the difference in the amount of tiles that they had left over. And, of course, the third, the fourth person will play the third person and the second person, and the fifth would play the fourth, the third, and the second. So it sucks and, to finish last. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's insane. And to take that one step further... If you get caught with any twos in your hand of the leftover tiles, then it doubles the value of the chips that you owe. If you add two, then it quadruples three <laughs> of them, four of them. It can get insanely painful. Um, but it's it's a really cool game. It's fun fun to play with. Do the twos double? Like if you go out with a two, does that double your hand when you go out, or is it no, only they, pen, they're only right, penalties? They're only penalties. Okay, exactly. And they can be very painful if you have a couple of them. Yeah. I think yeah. in one hand, I wasn't, I didn't even play a tile. <laughs> yeah. So my hand was horrible. And if I had had a two, I think uh, 13 tiles you start off with? Yeah, like sort of like mine. Yeah, yeah. Thing. It would have been insane. <laughs> 26 to you, 15 to you. And I think it was painful as it was. Yeah. But So I, what do you remember? I, the thing that I thought was the coolest wasn't that it did anything different than what we'd seen before because we've played you know if you played Great Dalmudi right. or you've played Gang of Four, <clears throat> you've played that ba- you've basically played this Absolutely. game in terms of how the game is going to play out. But the cool thing is the inventiveness of combining that style game with the mahjong style scoring. scoring right. Um, I think is very inventive and makes this game would make me want to get it out and play it and not just say, oh well, why don't we just play Gang of Four instead? Because it the, the tactileness of the the tiles as coupled with the right. um, the mahjong and, style scoring really makes it and I've, interesting. I'm a I think. huge fan of that type of scoring. Just simply because in in most games there's gonna you know every hand there's gonna be a winner and all the money is getting pushed in that direction. This gives you a chance to actually make some money, strive for something when when it's rather obvious that you aren't gonna win the hand. You don't just have to go. Who cares? Right. You know, someplace in the middle can still actually get you. Right. You know, and well, some in some cases we found out that um, you don't have to win to get the most amount of money. You know, right, and especially in a mahjong type of game, depending upon the value of the hand, yeah, and how many tiles people have left over. So it's a really yeah. cool, neat scoring mechanism. Well, definitely, it won't you won't get that runaway leader type thing going because even if I think in our in as a case in point in our game, I think Francie the first go around she lost and finished last several times, but ended up the difference wasn't so great between first and last because everybody was down to their last few tiles. Right. And then I think it was the very last round, she just absolutely hammered us and went out when none of us were expecting us. And I think she ended up finishing way higher than she would have even for, for having finished yeah. last so many times. It doesn't take that long. One good hand can really swing the, the money back in your favor, which is, I think, pretty cool. And it's a quick, it's a very fast game because they recommend five That's, hands. Yeah. Either five hands or if one person were to run out of chips, then the game would end after that hand. You know, but we said, you know, you could extend it to as many hands as you want or you could settle up after five and restart a new kind of game right. new session after that. And obviously this this was meant to gamble with. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it comes with How the chips. How could you not? But, <laughs> yeah, you... 
it, this <laughs> is as good as Mahjong as far as the gambling aspect goes. It, it's very fun. And for the speed, I think that's definitely yeah. an important quality, too, to have that style game and not, I mean, as much as I love Mahjong, if you're going to try to sit down and play a whole game, I mean, you're going to be there a long, <laughs> long time, time. <laughs> which is part of the fun of playing, but if you want to play that style game and you don't have forever, you could sit down and play Lexio for, I mean, literally, I don't think it would take more than a half an hour no. to play through a full game of this. And, I mean, you could, if you had more time, you could just, you know, shuffle up yep, and, and going, deal again right? and, and go for another whole round. But to me, that's a nice middle ground there where if you if you don't have the time to, to invest in Mahjong, you could yeah. have a lot of fun with this one, I think. It's, I'm just stoked that I managed to... <clears throat> just luckily squeak a copy of this yeah it seems like they're here and gone they, i've they tried a, since you got your copy oh, really? and, I, and and it's been gone every time i've looked they make a white version also um same exact game just a difference in the components um if i could get one of those and i didn't have a black one i would jump on one of those because oh, yeah. the game is so cool yeah i mean it's just know? an aesthetic thing i mean the right. game is essentially yeah. the same it's just the tiles are exactly so I'm, I'm totally stoked about this if if you can get a copy of Lexio, especially the Black Box Edition, go out and grab it. And if somebody knows about another way to get this, other yeah, let than us know the uh, Fun Again games. Let us know because I sure haven't found any other place, and it's and it's worth having in everybody's collection. I think. And, and it's not like Fun Again's advertising it as a Fun Again exclusive no, or anything. No. So I don't think it's the, that's right. the case. Well, um, Degoy um, <clears throat> is a Korean game. Uh, manufacturer, yeah. so I don't know if that's making it harder to get because obviously there's not a lot of games coming to the U.S. from, from Korea. Korea. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know, but definitely uh, check out Lexio. Yeah, fun it's, game if you like that Asian style ladder type game. It's it's one that you should add to your it collection. <laughs> so switching yeah, gears exactly. completely, <laughs> we move into the the heavier portion of the game uh, selection for the list this evening. Um, we've got Battle Lore. Yeah, baby. We definitely have to weigh in on Battle Lore. Um, newest, latest, greatest game from uh, Days of Wonder. We couldn't let it go too long without getting that puppy out and, and giving it a serious uh, play. So um, here's sort of some background around Battle Lore, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty discussion. So Battle Lore... Published in 2006, Richard Borg is the designer, Days of Wonder is the publisher. It's a two-player game, although there are some rules for you could do with, with more players. We'll get into that perhaps later. Um, it's about a one- to two-hour game, once you're familiar with the rules. You can find it online for about $50. <clears throat> so here we go with a little background about it. Battle War is the highly anticipated latest, greatest game from Days of Wonder. It is a medieval and fantasy war game using plastic miniatures to represent the competing forces on a battlefield. The game mechanics for Battle Lore are based on a command card mechanic which Richard Borg has used in several other very popular war games including Battle Cry, Memoir 44, and Command and Colors Ancients, which is the most recent of, of those games. Before we get into the game itself, we have to talk about the goober. <laughs> Cannot go yeah. for two seconds without talking about the goober. Uh, Days of Wonder keeps upping the ante with every new game, in my opinion. Battle Lore is chock full of goobery goodness. 210 detailed miniatures, including foot soldiers, archers, mounted knights, goblins, dwarves, and a giant spider to boot. Uh, there are 58 banner bearers and extra banners, a double-sided colorful map, 
46 terrain tiles depicting forest, hills, rivers, buildings, monsters, layers, 60 command cards, 60 lore cards, 24 lore master tokens, 12 custom dice, and you also get an online access number, which gives you access to additional scenarios and content related to the game at no additional charge. Whew. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. That's an amazing amount of goober. Uh, the miniatures are plastic, but they're well-detailed and very clean for being plastic miniatures, sometimes flashing the little sort of plastic exactly. boogery bits no, on the, on the edges clean. of the, the miniatures is an issue with plastic miniatures. None of that. Absolutely no flashing at all to deal with. Um, but they are very bendy. Which yes. means that you may end up with a few soldiers in very uh, suggestive yeah, or unsoldierly like positions. Poses, uh, Dave. Though you had a good suggestion, um, if yeah. you want to chime in here, yeah. With- somebody actually posted on the forum, on the official forum for Battle Lore, they had a process that you could go through <laughs> to straighten out your plastic figures that involved boiling a pan of water, transferring this boiling water to a container, dipping your your figure in the hot boiling water, immediately transferring it to cold water after straightening it up, put it in there for about a minute, and boom, Don't instant straight figure. <laughs> so that I just love it. There's, there's pictures and everything you know, taking you through this process, and I just thought that was great. We'll, put, we'll definitely put that in the show notes so you can see the, <laughs> the unbending or the rebending exactly. process, but I thought that was really cool. And, and it definitely, I have yet to see a battle or set that doesn't have some, yeah. you know, yeah, mine. A, yeah. a, a mounted guy, you know, sort of riding horizontal yeah, exactly. or something like that. So it's an issue that will probably come up. Yeah, um, I'll be boiling that water very soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, the miniatures would definitely be a lot of fun to paint, but it's certainly not necessary to paint them to play the game. There are enough different unit poses that you can easily split up the forces and be able to tell whose pieces are whose. Now, a unit in Battle Lore is made up of four of these miniatures, if it's on foot, and three of these miniatures if it's mounted, including a banner bearer. The banners have um, one of two heraldic symbols on them, either a lion's head or a fleur-de-lis, plus a color and a weapon icon. The banners designate the allegiance, type, and rank of each unit on the board. In other words, you should be able to tell the strength and type of forces you're fighting against simply by checking out the banners of each unit. On to the game. (laughs) Not unlike DBA, which we just covered in uh, last episode, Battle Lore uses a simpler rule system to leave the player more time to think about strategy. The battlefield is divided into three sections, left, right, and middle. Depending upon the scenario or your own freeform game, you'll set up terrain pieces in specific spots and then deploy your troops. In the historical game, you'll draw a hand of five command cards and you're ready to go. In the fantasy game, you'll add a lore master and draw one lore card, but we'll get to that later. So on your turn, you play one command card, which will allow you to activate a certain number of units in one, two, or three sections of the board. So, for instance, you might draw a command card that says you can activate two units on the left flank. You declare which units are activated, you move them if you want, and then you resolve combat using dice. After combat, you draw a command card and your opponent takes his next turn. Yes, it does take longer to describe the contents of the box than it does (laughs) to describe 90% of the game, but that's part of what makes the game so much fun, in my opinion. Uh, The rank and type of each unit determines how fast it can move as well as how um, well it will fight. Green banner units are light units and can move and fight over great distance, but they roll less, less dice in battles. Blue banner units 
roll more dice, but they're not as mobile. And finally, red banner units are the best in battle, but they're also the slowest. <clears throat> Combat is resolved by rolling dice according to the type and rank of the unit. Hits are scored if you roll a helmet matching the color of the target you're attacking. So, for instance, if you're attacking a red banner unit, if you roll red helmets, then you've scored a hit and they have to remove a, a guy from that unit. Um, certain units also score extra hits for a bonus symbol that are on each of the dice. So, like I just said, for each hit that you take, um, your opponent must remove one miniature from the unit leaving the banner bearer is the last one that you remove. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what type of unit that was. Exactly. Um, uh, the basic gist of the game is you set, at the beginning of the game, a certain number of banners that each side is trying to collect. And the first person to collect that number of banners is going to be the winner of the game. So you're trying to whittle whittle these units down. They, they either start with four or three, pick them off one by one, and then eventually get to that banner bearer, which you claim is one of your sort of like victory points exactly. towards winning. Um, the command cards add a really fun but at some points frustrating element to the game. How far can you press your luck on one flank or the other? If you run out of cards allowing you to activate your troops on one section, you could leave them high and dry when you want to retreat or when you want to press the advantage. Um, it is possible to get a little ha card hosed in this game. You may need left flanks and all you have is right <laughs> flanks in your hand, but the cool thing is that almost every card gives you the option to move one unit in any section of the board if you can't follow the specific instructions on the card. So that's a really nice way of, of dealing with exactly. that card hose issue that, that definitely <laughs> it came up in the three it games did, that, that we played. Now, the historical game is fun and fast-paced, but I think the lore rules are what make battle lore really shine. Each army, when you play with the lore rules, which is kind of the fantasy aspect of the game, adds a lore master, either a wizard, a cleric, a, a warrior, or a rogue to its ranks. The lore master draws from a deck of cards, a different one for each lore master, which can be played in addition to, or in some cases, instead of command cards. These lore cards add a great unknown element to each game. Lore masters acquire lore tokens through rolling the battle dice or by collecting uh, lore tokens instead of cards at the end of the turn. So the battle dice that you roll in addition to these helmets that score hits, there's one side that's the lore token. If you're playing with the historical scenario, the lore tokens mean ignored, nothing. Right? It's just a miss. If those come up in the fantasy thing, each time they come up, you pull a lore token out and put it in this little cute cup <laughs> on the side of the board that you keep all your lore tokens um, in. The lore, to the lore cards, however, can only be played if your lore master has enough lore tokens to pay for the cost of the card. There's a card cost printed on the card, and you have to pay tokens in order to play each of the cards that you want to play. Um, by adding an element of magic and unpredictability, you could fight the same two armies on the same board ten times, and the battle would always be completely different, which to me is probably the greatest strength that this Absolutely. game has. Once you're familiar with a single lore master in your army, you can ramp the game up even one more notch and play with a war council, which uses all the lore masters at once, so you have access to all of the lore cards when you're drawing, and it just provides even more possibilities of, of different ways that you could use these lore cards to make your opponent's life a, a living hell. And some of those cards are heinous. Oh, yeah, they, they are completely... If you're on the receiving end. 
hand of them. <laughs> They're complete rules breakers, but in the best sense right. of that, you know, words. There's cards like you can teleport, you know, one unit completely across the board or things like that, which is would be an awesome Painful. thing to happen at certain points of the game. So lastly, uh, before I shut up and let Dave have his two cents here, um, there are special creatures, monsters like the giant spider, that have special cards and rules that can be added either to armies or to different scenarios that you're going to play. Days of Wonder has two special promotional creatures out right now, a hill giant and an earth elemental that you can get if you buy the game from a brick-and-mortar store or I think some of them are going to be available at cons right. as well. But their plan is to release new creatures and new army figures throughout the coming year, so there's going to be a whole customizable aspect to this game in terms of being able to field specific kinds of armies. Um, I love war games. But I understand by why some gamers can be put off by either the complexity or the length of this stereotypical war game. Battle lore, like DBA, breaks with those conventions. Coupled with the fun magic rules and the sheer value and quality of the components, I think battle lore, in my opinion, is set to become the new standard both for war gamers and non-war gamers alike, as far as like an entry level. You want to sit down and play any kind of war game, that's going to be one of the first ones that, that jumps to mind. So, blah, I've been dominating the conversation, so go for it, Dave. Uh, give me give me your two cents. You might mention the different scenarios and stuff that we actually, because we did play. Right, we played three or four scenarios. Um, the, the game just blew me away, because everybody knows that I don't consider myself a war gamer. I don't particularly avoid those games, but I just don't get a chance to play very many of those, and this game was awesome. I mean, it just, I would sit down and play. We couldn't get enough. We actually ran out of time. <laughs> Instead of just deciding to stop, we had to stop yep. because I'm, I think 12 hours had gone by or something <laughs> insane. Um, but there's so many good things about this game. It's it's almost impossible to find a starting point. The first thing is the, the, the banners that pop in and out of the figures that allow the flexibility of the units and what you can create is just insane because Typically, if you've got your painted, painted your guys and they are this type of unit, that's what they are. But in this, there, there's no limit to what units you can put together. You know, if you want to have all red banner units this one time and turn around the next game, have all green or all blue or any combination of the above, there's no limits to what you can do. Even, even with what ships in the box, it seems <laughs> yes. like there's just an awesome amount of possibilities. You know, with the unit types... I'm sure people are going to blow through, oh goodness, how many there are? Maybe 10 yeah, scenarios 10. in the first thing? I mean, there are literally hundreds already, already posted yeah. on the Battle Lore site. I saw the fan base. Site. A lot of fan base ones. They also have an awesome battle um, editor, like a yeah, little thing scenario for you to, editor. Yeah, for you to actually create your own graphic based thing where you can create it, you know, print it out and. You know, it'll show the battle map and where all the train and stuff is going to go, and you can design it. It's just. Great. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can definitely see how smart they were in planning for this game and sort of integrating not just it's not uh, collectible in any sense, but giving you a good base to start out with. You could never buy another battle or figure, and you have plenty and, of stuff right. to buy. But you can also see the possibility of adding those creatures or or you know being able to mix and match as they start to come out with a few more. Uh, Things and I would hope that they're going to price those those miniatures at a 
point that they're not going to break the bank. So right. you could just pull a few creatures or a few things into your set right. over Find time. Find the stuff that you like about the game and just buy those particular things. Because I know they are planning on putting a lot of stuff out. Right. Um, one thing I think that um, bears mentioning, too, um, just in terms of the rules, is the, the board is double-sided. So they have a, the one side is the one you're going to use in most of the games that of the we, time, right. we talked about. We did two historical scenarios, the Ashen Core and I can't remember what the second the second one in the scenario right. book. And then we jumped to the lore scenarios and tried the <clears throat> the first of the lore scenarios to kind of get a sense of how the the lore system worked. Um, but the back side of the board is set up so that you can actually butt it up against another, another board. person's board and have this massive. I mean, I think you could even put several boards together the way it's set up um, and have just a huge game board so that you could play with several people at once. <clears throat> I know I've done this with Memoir 44, and I know you could do it with Battle Lore, right. where you could actually play on that, that single two-player board with, with up two to or three six people, people. On a side, right. Um, with, where you have one person with the command cards who is like the, the uber general. Um, and he out. issues orders, and then you have uh, sort of secondary generals to each section of the board, and they're only responsible for the left flank or the center. And it's up to the general to decide. He's the only one who sees all the cards at once, and he decides how to dole out the orders. Adds a whole different sort oh. of role-playing aspect to the game because you're like, you know, I could really kick these <laughs> goblins' butts if you could just give me give a me freaking order, order to, to do it. Um so it definitely, although it is a two-player game, I like the fact that it, it actually yeah. scales up in a way that you wouldn't typically expect this kind of game to scale up like that. I can't wait to just like put that. our two boards together and, oh, and, and yeah, come up with some at it. crazy thing of our own already. <laughs> my only my only criticism, and it's fairly minor, and I know I'm nitpicking, is I know exactly what you're gonna the say stupid too. retreat rules, I think, are a little, are a little the, weird. Um, I, go ahead. With the the way the game works, I didn't go into all the technical details because I'd put you all to sleep. But in the in the case when you're in combat, if you don't destroy an enemy or it has to run off, it's going to retreat, um, and it's going to always retreat towards it the side of the board that it came from, which in some cases technically isn't a true retreat. Yeah, if that's it, not where it, you it can end up being an advance instead right. of a retreat, which. It just seems counterintuitive to me. It's not really a... It's just you have to get your brain around that concept. Right. And as long Adjust as you know that that's the way this game is going to exactly. work, I don't know that that's anything right or wrong. It just works differently than right. uh, most of the conventional war games that I've played. You're not going <laughs> to retreat... You know, you're going to retreat back from the way you attacked. Exactly. In most cases, not the way from just some predetermined side of the board, which it just it creates some very wonky. <laughs> you ha you definitely have to oh, consider you have to watch that. Watch out for that big time because um, you'll be blocked in and and maybe even forced to lose units because right, you can't retreat. Right, and you know maybe something I didn't cover very well is the key strategy in the game is is forming up your units into um, sort of these triangles right. of support where um, like you don't have to retreat. Exactly. There's another side on the die that has a black flag, which means that your unit has to retreat, which is what we're just talking about. Um, if they're emboldened, which means that they have supporting troops um, butting up against them on at least two sides, then they get to ignore the first retreat um, die roll. 
the or face that's rolled. If which you roll is. two, then you'd still have to retreat, but you would get to ignore that first one, which is a huge, huge advantage. Because advantage. If, you, if you're not forced to retreat, then there's a good chance you're going to be able to retaliate. Right, right. You know? That's the other advantage. If you have that support, you're considered bold. They have a morale system in the game. If your unit is emboldened and you're attacked, then you get to immediately battle back against the opponent, so your opponent may actually take casualties on his turn, which is not the normal... It's right. not the way you want combat to occur. <laughs> if you're attacking, you exactly. definitely... You don't want to attack a unit that's bold if you can help it. Good chance of coming back. You might end up getting obliterated, which I think happened to me a couple times where I was just forced to try to break through the wall and wasn't able to do it, and Dave just ripped me a new (laughs) one. (laughs) I think my, my only beef, and this is so minor it doesn't really even count, is with the, um, the archers. Mm. Um, there, there wasn't, um, from from a distance, they work just like typical archers, and you know they have a, you know a certain, they have to be in line of sight, and they have a certain range. Mm-hmm. But when they come right up face to face with a unit, they're just automatically considered to be in melee. No, uh, nothing counted off against them for yeah. you know having their bows, you know, in a little toe to toe match here. And I think it would have been rather simple to just maybe lose a die or. Something different to show that I you totally know. Agree. Hey, you know you're you've got a you know a ranged weapon, and now you're going toe to toe with some dude with a sword. Mm-hmm. I think you would have to suffer some some type of penalty for that. And they don't. Maybe that's something that's going to come later. Maybe you know. I would agree too that I mean it makes more sense that they might have bonuses on the other side if you give them a kind right, of penalty exactly. against mounted because the mounted units are bigger targets. And you right. know, th- to me, that might be a cool game balance way to to give them a little more exactly muscle, but yet also give them some downside to where th- it seems weird that they fight at the same strength as the short sword skirmishers right. when it comes to close combat. Exactly, it seems like they should be at some, some dis- disadvantage, disadvantage exactly. for and having the, to switch the cool to melee. Thing is, at, at the same time, where we pick on it like this. It's also cool in that if you're writing your own scenarios, there's nothing that stops you from putting yeah. in a little rule or two about certain units that will suffer a penalty yes. if they find themselves in hand-to-hand combat with a ranged weapon. Because the rules are so simple, right. you could tweak them in very simple ways that wouldn't just totally break the game, exactly. I, I think. Um, I would agree that uh, it seemed like you responded more to the lore Scenario oh. or that that Woo! I mean you kind you liked it I didn't think you disliked it but it seemed like once we started with the lore you're like oh yeah yeah it's just like the gates had opened the flexibility <laughs> was was all of a sudden you know multiplied times a thousand it was so cool in addition to your battle strategy which the basic version forces you to concentrate on this opens it up and gives you this whole game management of lore tokens and the cards and specific all these funky things that you're going to be able to do. And then one step further, when you go to the um, the war councils, right. then all of a sudden the quantity of cards that you're allowed to hold in your hand is affected based on um, how you put together your war council yes. and all this stuff. So all of a sudden there's just all these things to take into considera- consideration when you're planning out how to start off this battle. And it's just... Mind-numbingly cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I went in thinking I was going to like it a lot, and I was not disappointed. So that's it's good that they followed through on their promise. And everything I, we'd read about it made it seem like it was going to be really cool, and it's just so nice to not have to go. Man, they they shot for the moon, but they missed yeah. the mark. I think they shot for the moon, and they actually hit it yeah. pretty square on. And when you step one. up to the lore and step up to the war council, it's not like. 
this really impossible, all of a sudden, this impossible game. No, They've no. designed it in this really streamlined, neat way as far as learning the game and playing it, but that doesn't, like, you know, put a towel over your create, you know, your strategy. It doesn't yeah. stifle you at all. It's it just, only enhances yeah. what you could already do. It doesn't really suddenly take away part, you know, aspects of the game that exactly. that you... You know. I also love that they included all those reference cards. I mean, yes. there, there are things that are necessary, I think, in the beginning that you maybe won't use after a few games, but basically they have a little reference card for each player for each situation, like what a weapon does, how a unit moves, that's, yeah, that's a good blah, point. blah, blah. And you can lay these all out in front of you, and it's like instant reference to whatever you need, especially in those first few games, and you can tailor them towards what you need. If there's a couple reference cards you don't need, you don't use them. If you need them all, then there they are. Yeah. You know, so it's, I found those really handy in the first one. It made the play of those those first couple of games just be, you know, that much quicker. So, yeah. I mean, part of, part of it is too, it's a, such a refined mechanic that, I mean, this isn't really the first go around. Exactly. That, I think that bears repeating right. in that, you know, he, Borg, had some Borg has had some time <laughs> to kind of think about how to best integrate the system with maybe uh, the magic sort of the chaotic, you know, it's definitely, I'm sure there's going to be pure strategy war gamers that are going to hate the sort of lore aspect to it, but you know, they're not going to probably play this game anyway. They're, they're going to look for a more pure strategy game, but to find a way to take that, um, more wargamerly mechanic with the co- the command card system and sort of marry it to the, the magic fantasy, system yeah. in a way that doesn't break either one. Um, that's very well done. And, and the fact that this game is so solid just, to me, reflects that it's been refined. And right. he's had, you know, sort of, it's like with writing, you know, you go through uh, drafts and revisions and revisions, and this just seems like it's, it's the polished final draft the, of what right. has been coming through all these... These other games. Was, you know, I'm so glad that Richard Borg decided to hook up with Days of Wonder for these for the, latest oh, versions of yes, his think. of this system because he could have gone a lot of other directions and definitely his his ideas are in good hands yeah. with Days of Wonder. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, we should also mention that um, if if you get if you purchase Battle Lore, you can go online and register yourself as a Battle Lore owner. Yeah, it's a good point, and this will allow you to actually purchase the second promo figure for a $4 shipping and handling fee, and that's it. I've already got mine, and it's very cool, the little Earth Elemental. And there's also a little blog on there about the quality of the dice that come with the game. Oh, yes, yes. Um, leave it up to Days and Wonder. They they are <laughs> awesome. They've noticed that the... Um, the, the screen printing. The screen printing is rubbing off a little quicker than they had anticipated, so they are already making replacements that are much better, and as soon as they have them available, there will be a post on the site, and they will be sending them out to all registered owners that are having a problem with their dice, which is awesome. They saw the problem, and they tackled it before anybody even you know, yeah. knew about it. It's great. That's, yeah, big thumbs up. Days of Wonder has done nothing but impress me with, you know, they just have hit the ground running since they've... Yeah. Mystery of the Abbey, it, if every game has been of a high quality, and they just seem to raise the bar. I can't going, imagine yeah. what the where next step is going to be right. from here, but I'm, I want to see where they can go. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, again, the two games on the list this week were uh, Battle Lore and Lexio, and I think we would both enthusiastically <laughs> say, seek them out and, and give them a try. Oh, yeah. you, in fact, I think as chance. soon as we turn off the mics, we're going to play another <laughs> game of Battle Lore right the hell now. <laughs> he, is, he is so right. <laughs> Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. 
The back shelf spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So we have the um, connection game winners to deal with from uh, episode 19. Uh, for those of you who uh, don't remember, um, the two games from episode 19 were Dino Hunt and DBA. And there was actually a connection between Dino Hunt and DBA. And as we always do, um, there we ask for you to write in with your guesses as to what this mystery connection could be. And there, if there are more than one winner, then we put all those names into a hat. And this time we're actually going to roll some dice to determine yeah. who who's going to win. Um, so we had a couple good swings and misses that were worth mentioning here. Uh, Good guesses, but wrong guesses. Uh, so, Ken and Kentucky guessed that both games span a very long timeline. Very true. Cool. Not the one we're looking for, but good Good to point that out. Rick in Indiana uh, guessed that the connection was, and I quote, the anachronistic juxtapositions of competing forces. <laughs> Which is a great phrasing, Rick, but uh, still but, wrong. Eh. <laughs> uh, finally, Mathen in Virginia guessed that both games would be would be played better with this pair of spiel dice. <laughs> Flattery will get you nowhere, Matt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but speaking <laughs> of a pair of spiel dice, <laughs> yes, I think it's rather appropriate that we're going to determine the winner <laughs> with a pair, an official pair of spiel dice. Yes. Oh, we should mention what the connection is. Should we do that beforehand, or should we announce the winner first? I'll keep rolling. You announced the okay. connection. So the connection, uh, there was sort of twofold connection. Uh, the connection between Dino Hunt and DBA is that they both use a single six-sided die. Sort of corollary to that is that they both use action points. We accepted either cool. one as, as a correct answer, and we had a lot of winners this time. Sweet. So only one winner, though, can actually win the coveted pair of spiel dice that Dave is rolling right now. Let's, let's give it a roll here, Dave. That would mean that John is our winner. John uh, will—he'll be expecting a, spare, a pair of spiel dice uh, in the mail. We'll, we'll send you an email so we can get uh, your particulars and send the dice to you. Uh, we know that some of them have already arrived in their their home bases for our listeners. So maybe we'll even send you this exact pair Ooh. that caused you to win. <laughs> They've been touched by day. I don't know whether you want <laughs> yeah, those maybe, dice, actually. Second thought, maybe you don't want those. <laughs> so keep in mind, we play this game every week. Uh, there's going to be a connection between the two games that we mention here in the Back Shelf Spotlight and the games uh, that we're going to talk about on the Back Shelf Spotlight this week are... Fearsome Floors and... Canasta. A rather obvious connection. Of course. I don't even think we have to describe the games and the connection just leaps out at you. <laughs> so the first game on the list tonight, or in the back shelf spotlight, sorry, is Fearsome Floors. It was published by 2F Spiele in 2003 and by Rio Grande in 2004. It was designed by Friedman Fries. It's for two to seven players, ages ten and up. Retails for about thirty-eight bucks. You can get it for twenty-five to thirty bucks online. So I typically don't read verbatim out of the rule book, but I felt the necessity <laughs> to read the synopsis of the game that they call the fairy tale. So 
I'm going to need a shelter from the spit coming my way. I I just felt that I had to read this, so no laughing or go ahead and laugh out loud. (laughs) So here we go. It was fabulous. Fearlessly, you found the three fetishes in the Finnish fjord. With light-footed and foxy feints, you ferry the fetishes to Prince Fieso in France to free the fascinating fairy Fabula. (laughs) But Fieso is not fond of foreigners. What a fiasco. You land... You land freezing and foolishly find yourself trapped in a frightful fortress with sinister corridors. Now you must flee Fieso's trap. Furunculus, the monster, is a frightening freak, especially fond of foolish foreigners. He will feed on you if he was able. So you want to fool Furunculus and flee to freedom. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Nice job. <laughs> you got through that with uh, a, a minimum amount of spit. <laughs> and, and I think that that just sets the whole tone for how fun and silly this game is. Yeah. You just read that and you know that you're in for an evening of fun. So before I get into the game, I'll go over the components real quick because it has a lot of fun little components. you got a, a game board, which is basically a grid, an empty grid that is going to allow you to put out components. So at the start of every game, you can kind of customize the floor plan of the game with tiles like um, stone tiles, crystal tiles, um, rotating stones, teleporters, pools of blood, <laughs> all kinds of really neat things that you can set the game up with. Uh, you also get a set of monster movement tiles shaped like these little tombstones shuffled up in a stack. Every turn, one will be drawn and it'll determine kind of how the monster moves. And then you get a whole truckload of little character figures that are these little wooden discs with stickers on each side. The movement allowance is printed on the sticker, and what I think is really cool is both sides are different but total up to seven, just <laughs> like a six-sided die. So you got a six with a one on the other side, three and a four and a five and a two. Pretty cool. And the <laughs> best component with this game is the monster building kit. Yep. <laughs> Had, so at the beginning of every game, you actually get to construct your monster. It comes with several heads, several torsos, handfuls of arms and legs. Now, how you construct him absolutely affects doesn't affect the game Nothing. in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> but it's just fun as hell to yep. build this goofy, stupid little monster. So I had to mention that. The game is actually really simple. It plays in two stages. The first stage basically has... Um, the option of the game is to enter basically this crazy fairy tale castle place and an attempt to also enter it and then get out through the exit. Um, in the first step, if you're caught by the monster and eaten, you just get reset back to the beginning. In the second step of the game, if you get caught and eaten by the monster, your piece is gone permanently. Hmm. So those are kind of like the two <laughs> basic steps of the game. Um, in each phase of a game, the only thing that really happens is that you move and then the monster moves. <laughs> it's pretty darn simple. Your movement is based on the movement allowance like we discussed before that's on your little disc. Once you make a move with your character, you flip him over. So now the next turn with that particular character is going to be the new movement allowance. Um, So if you have a a nice big chunky six to move your guy, (laughs) you know the next time you're going to suffer because he's only going to be able to move one. Exactly. (laughs) But I think what bears going into a little more detail is the monster movement because (laughs) this is just wonderful. He's, He's complete stupid monster every time before he moves he looks left he looks right and he looks forward and all he knows is if he sees a target that's where he's going to (laughs) move if he sees two targets then he's going to go to the closest one and that's it 
and he refocuses, he relooks every single step of the way. So if he were to look forward and see Stephen, he would just take one step forward. But before he takes another step, he would look left and right again. And if all of a sudden he can now see me to his right and Stephen to the front and I happen to be closer, he's going to turn right and make a <laughs> beeline. So in this way, he just kind of meanders around the board, always yep. you know, trying to find people to eat. And it's, it's just crazy. The, the object of the game is just to, depending upon how many players there are, you need to get like two or three of your pieces out of this twisted maze of death. Yeah. <laughs> and the the artwork on the box in, in the manual is just wonderful, cartoony. Sort of just, comic booky. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, can't say enough about this game. We've played it a couple times. I think we took it on vacation with yes, us once. Yes. Um, and it's just a fun little, um, kind of, I would say, an ancestor to Robo Rally. It has that feel, you know. Yeah. But I would the, say Ricochet Robots. And too. Ricochet Robots, yeah. It has kind of a almost part puzzle part game quality right, to it because of the you know just looking at the board and going oh it's obvious i need that to go here and there it's it, it almost has that kind of ricochet robot thing going. yeah for you're it absolutely too. right i forgot that also that the the spaces on the board the outside spaces are labeled and so if the monster runs into one he actually appears on he comes back <laughs> in on the opposite side of the board with the matching lettered so sometimes it's really hard to figure out where this cat's going to yeah. be. The mechanic just seems to reflect, you know, I mean, you can just, it, whether it's like a zombie or Frankenstein's monster, just the way it, yeah. it sort of lumbers going around, the, the, that mechanic is so well yeah. chosen for the, the and theme, he, I think. He always, always finds somebody to eat, especially if you're playing <laughs> If you're playing a seven-player game, there's oh. over 20 people, yeah. <laughs> 20 pieces on the board. He's going to find something to eat. Yep. <laughs> So a classic, classic game. It hasn't been around that long, but it's just fun, light, heavy in theme. Yeah. You know. One you might overlook and think is too kiddie, yeah. but it isn't. But is it? It's very fun. So Fearsome Floors, look it up. First one on the li- or on the back shelf spotlight. Second one is Canasta. And remember, there's a connection between Canasta and Fearsome Floors. We want to have your emails at Stephen at the Spiel.net. Or Dave at the Spiel.net. And let us know what, what your guesses are between the connections. So Canasta is a game that probably you think of as a game your grandma plays <laughs> and not something that right. you want to play, but here's here's why you should. <laughs> so it was um, originally invented in 1939. Although it seems like you know seems it like might it be, be yeah. older, older, older. It's actually a fairly modern game. It actually um, there are two credited designers, although it's in the public domain. Segundo Santos and Alberto Serrato um, are the credited designers. You can play with two to six players. The the traditional I think way, the most ways you're going to find people playing is a four player game with people playing in partnerships. It takes about 45 minutes to play the average game of Canasta. Um, the game of Canasta actually originated in Montevideo, Uruguay, around 1940. Its creators were actually looking for a diversion from their obsession with contract bridge. Uh, Canasta first spread to Argentina and then to the U.S., and now it's played, obviously, throughout the world. In the 1950s, as a matter of fact, Canasta threatened to displace Contract Bridge as the most popular card game played anywhere in the planet, which is pretty impressive. I mean, how cool is that to have invented a game that gets spread that wide and far? The name Canasta comes from the small Canastillo, which was a small basket that the designers used in the little gentleman's club to store their cards. 
has basically nothing to do with exactly. the game or whatever, but that's how it came. They shortened it to, to canasta, canasta, and you know it means the basket, basically, or little basket. That's very um, cool. Which is pretty cool. Um, the canasta rules were standardized in North America around 1950, and it was this version of the game that gained worldwide popularity. In many countries, canasta is still played more or less in this original form with some local variations. There is this weird American variant that I wasn't even aware of called Modern American Canasta that has evolved into a very different game from the classic. You know, you can see that its its predecessor it was Canasta, Canasta right. but it's a very different game. That's not what we're talking about. We're going to be talking about Canasta cool. here. Um, so Canasta is generally agreed to be best played with four players in partnerships. And it's basically a kind of rummy bridge hybrid, if that makes sense. It's played with two full 52-card decks plus four jokers. The jokers and the two cards are wild. Um, you and your partner are trying to score points by playing melds to the table, which are sets of cards of the same rank. A canasta is a particular type of meld. It's a meld of seven or more cards. A red canasta contain, contains no wild cards, while a black or a dirty canasta <laughs> contains wild cards and is going to score you less points. Um, the the additional rule is that there can never be more than three wild cards in any particular meld or canasta. Um, partners' melds are held in common, um, but you can never play cards onto your opponent's melds. So on your turn, like almost every standard kind of rummy-style game, you're going to take a card from either the draw pile or pick up the entire discard pile. However, you can only pick up the discard pile if you can play the top card immediately in a meld. The first player to meld all their cards in a, ends the round and scores are tallied. Each card has a specific value. The king through eight are worth 10 points, wilds are worth 20, and so on. Canastas and other bonuses are added to your meld scores, and then any cards that are left in your hand are subtracted from that total. Um, and you either play until you're just ready to quit, or you play to a certain point total, right. and then you, you settle up. Um, there are two additional rules that are worthy of mention in this kind of overview. The discard pile can be frozen, keeping all players from picking it up for melds. If a wild card has been played to the discard pile, it's, it is frozen. The wild card is turned sideways to indicate that the pile is frozen, so no one can take anything from it. The other rule contains uh, the other rule that I think is worth mentioning is uh, the three. The the three yeah. cards are really cool. The red threes give players bonuses for scoring if they're drawn and you play them aside. It's kind of like drawing a flower, flower. tile exactly. in mahjong, which is kind of a weird <laughs> uh, parallel. Yeah. Um, so you just draw it and you set it aside, and you're just going to get bonus points for it. The black threes, however, are like stop cards and. If you play them to the discard pile, they sort of temporarily freeze right. the discard pile. The discard pile is frozen for the next person who plays, but the minute that the black three is covered up, um, you're, everything's fine and the game's back to kind of the normal, the normal flow. Um, there's other, there are lots of other oh. subtle rules concerning opening meld values teams right. must have to play and how and when wilds and threes can be played depending upon each specific form of canasta because there are a lot of like local variations that are played all over the world. But I think this gives you a basic 
good idea of, of the basic classic Canasta game. Um, it's easy to learn, but it still has some strategy. And to me, I think it's the perfect card game for when you're wanting to socialize and right. play at the same time because it doesn't take that much sort of mental effort to play, but it's not as sort of brainless it's as been, rummy. Especially it was simplified since the majority of forms of Canasta are just... Um, you're not doing any runs. Yes. They're just sets of cards. Yes. You know, so it does make it a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Even but, though there's all those goofy, <laughs> strange rules about opening values, uh, values and, of your and the red threes and yeah. the discards being frozen. But it's a classic game, and don't just write it off because, oh, I see people playing it at the senior citizens. Yeah, you don't have to be 75 to play no, this game. No, no. And, but if you are, there's every reason to be playing this yeah. game because it is a classic game, and, and it doesn't matter. It's an ageless game, I guess is what we're saying. It, you should seek it out if you don't know about it. It, you can play it with a standard deck of cards, so it couldn't yeah. cost you any less than uh, you probably already have a deck of cards. Yeah. So exactly, sit down and and give it a, give it a whirl. <laughs> so remember, last last chance here. We're going to remind you one more time. Stephen at the Spiel .net. Dave at the Spiel .net. Send in your guesses. Canasta, fearsome floors. Yep. I think I'm throwing down the glove. I don't think anybody's getting this. I I think you're right. I don't think anybody's getting it. We'll we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now, we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the Goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great Goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great Goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. Welcome to the Goober section. So today we have a game in the Goober spotlight that actually was sent in by one of our listeners. Listener Steve said, hey, how about Dark Tower? I mean, come on. It's got a huge electronic tower that controls the whole game. It's a Goober gimme. He couldn't be more right. I know this is something that Stephen and I have thought about putting on the Goober for a long time, and I think the first episode of 2007 is the perfect time for <laughs> Dark Tower. Dun, dun, dun. It was published in 1981 by Milton Bradley. Unfortunately, once again, the designer is uncredited. It's for one to four players, ages 10 and up. It's out of print, but you can find it online for between $1 and $300. <laughs> And obviously the price variance depends on the condition and the completeness of the copy that you can find. But I would say that it's probably one of the most collectible board games out there. Yeah. This that, that's um, of a modern era yeah, type I, of thing. I think you're right. Um, so just give you a little overview of the game before we jump into the goober. <laughs> um, basically, in Dark Tower, each player starts in your home realm on a circular board and you have to travel to each of the other three kingdoms. In each kingdom you have to search and quest until you can find a special key. Once you have all three keys, then you can approach the Dark Tower and attempt to defeat the force within. Now during your search, you're going to be amassing this army that's going to follow you around and it's going to help you defeat everything that you find out in the special lands and then help you defeat the tower the once you get battle. to the tower. Exactly. There are certain squares that might have you drawn events that are everything is randomly generated by the tower. All the stats and the size of your army, 
all once again kept by the tower. Just so totally cool. You might meet a dragon that, you know, is going to eat up chunks of your army. <laughs> Just all kinds of, you might find gold that you have to pay to keep your soldiers, find food to keep them fed, you know, keep them fed. All kinds of really cool stuff. One really cool thing that made this game, I think, super popular is that you can play with one person. I think people yeah. would set this puppy up and just play it by themselves because the tower runs everything. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd see, you know, how... Can I beat it this exactly, time? Exactly, <laughs> can I beat it this time? So that's just a quick synopsis of the game. Now, here's why it's in the goober. <laughs> Have to start with the number one thing, the tower itself. It's over 10 inches tall, 4 inches in diameter, uses those huge gargantuan D batteries, which I don't know that anything uses those anymore. (laughs) But it's just, by today's standard, it's probably bleh. But when this came out, it was, for lack of a better term, the shit. Yeah. I mean, it it was it, you know. And all of us who had one or played one and now don't have a copy are going, ah, I can't believe I still don't have that. Yep. Because it is so cool. It comes with a round, a pretty good-sized round game board, has 16 plastic buildings, four plastic warriors, a plastic dragon, 12 plastic keys, five plastic flags, 42 plastic score pegs, and everybody has an inventory chart that you use those pegs on. So it just comes with a ton of stuff. (laughs) It has, the box was oversized. It was just really cool. And this, this cracks me up. There is actually a cat on eBay who runs a tower repair service. (laughs) This game is so popular that this cat can eke some type of a living out of repairing. He says, I can clean your tower, I can replace or rebuild the motor, change the bulbs, align the graphics center, fix any wires or terminals, and he's got a one-year warranty. So you pay him to keep your tower in good working order, and he's going to hook you up with a warranty. That's awesome. That's That's just cool. I think this is probably... One of the last games on my list to like kind of like gimmicky type of things that I might actually spend the money on trying to acquire a good mint copy of this. Yeah. I had a copy and my mom sold it at a garage. No. When I was away at college, oh, I just thought you didn't, you know, it's the old apocryphal, oh, you didn't need those comic books anymore. <laughs> right. And, what? what? <laughs> Come home and <laughs> immediately it was just a ploy to get me to take the rest of my crap <laughs> yeah. out of the house. And it worked because I wasn't going to let any exactly. of my other stuff go the way of my poor dark tower. I think of the the sound effects. Oh, right. Like, I just, I can still hear the sound effects <laughs> of like the the dragon or the the battle sounds and things like that and it was kind of like they they sold it as like the computerized you know game too because it's sort of the advent of you know the personal computer starting to go into people's homes and things that oh you've got this little computer in the game and stuff (laughs) and that you know gave it kind of the extra cachet too exactly yeah this is this is one that i think will for many many years be on people's list of kind of those funky fine things that you almost can't consider your collection complete yeah. unless you have a working copy of it's this. It's on my list just because I had it and I need to reacquire yeah. it because it was such a cool game. <laughs> so thanks again, Steve, for sending in this great, great request suggestion. For, for a goober because I couldn't think of something that belongs on the list more than this. Yeah, well, we were happy to take any suggestions for goober, right. backshelf, any of the categories. Feel free to haul forth and let us know if you think we've missed missed the boat. <laughs> Um, so remember Dark Tower this week. Uh, if you can find a copy, get it. <laughs> yeah, or if you have, if you have a copy and you want us to let, it know, let us know about something about it, 
Send us an email. We'd love to hear about your Dark Tower stories. Yeah. <laughs> the Game Sommelier. Or, Right Game, Right Crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called the Game Sommelier. Here's Dave with this week's challenge. So this week, Steven's on the hot seat, attempting to find five games for a Super Bowl party. And if you'll remember, I gave him the option of just finding the games or creating some zany, whacked-out, whole, cool day. (laughs) So let's see what Steven came up with. So I kind of split the middle here. I did a few that are going to be kind of an overall thing, and then a few that are... Yeah, I'm imagining a party where you're going to have people who are maybe big football fans and then people who this might be the only football they watch right. all year. And you may have parts of the party where you know maybe the, there are going to be a lot of people around when the game is actually happening or right before. and then But you might have a game day that's going on sort of concurrently, you know, starts early in the day and then, you know, cool. you've got less people and then as the day goes on, you got a big group of people, and then you may have games afterwards, you know, after the, the party is, or the game is kind of winded down. I think that sounds great. I think almost everybody's Super, Super Bowl parties end up being like that. Yeah. You know, some serious <laughs> footballers and some not quite so serious. So, of course, I have to kind of focus with it being football. you got to focus on the football games. With the, There's going to be kind of a meta game going on between cool. all three of these football-related uh, games where... Um, there are all kinds of possibilities for uh, either gambling or tying it to the actual outcome of the actual Super Bowl. Ah. So those are going to be the kind of first. Not three, that we would ever condone games. gambling, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, so the first game, which obviously just immediately leapt to mind, was pizza box football. Fairly new, 2005, Eric and Scott Smith, their brothers, cool. <laughs> um, uh, on the line games is their game company. Um, it's a two-player game. takes about an hour to play. You can find it online for about $24. Um, it's a great dice-based football simulation game. It does a great job, I think, of mimicking kind of the ebb and flow of a real NFL football game, as well as the strengths and weaknesses of the different teams. Um, it has rules for fast play, or complete games using special, and it also has special sheets that you can use for each specific NFL team. Oh, that's so cool. here's where I came up with the idea of um, this would be kind of maybe one of the early games that to get the more hardcore, either hardcore gamers or hardcore football people interested. Right. Is you have a little pizza box football tournament using. Um, the actual teams that are in the NFL playoffs because you have the little sheets and you could start out and have each person, you know, either draw from a hat or whatever to figure out what team they're going to play and go through um, the elimination. Or you could have set up and just say, well, each person is going to play the different games of the playoffs. And you could say, well, if you happen to score the same score as the actual playoff game that's already happened, you may get a prize or something. Leading up to the Super Bowl... Um, the other way to do it would be to just have everybody play the two teams that are in the Super Bowl. 
And you could write down the scores at the quarter, the scores at the half, the scores at the third quarter, and then you write those down and you use those as uh, like a raffle or a gambling thing for the actual Super Bowl. And you say, well, my score at the half was, you know, 10 to 3. Um, ah. And if that matches up, then you get some sort of prize like, or whatever. Everybody, cool. you know, chucks in a couple bucks. Um, I would definitely not recommend playing the full game for each one. You'd have to use right. a pared down one. The full game is awesome, but it just takes too long if you're doing it in this context. Okay. If you just have like one person who's going to play, fine. But if you're going to do it with multiple people, you probably need a couple copies of the game. And uh, there are rules for doing sort of a, a pared down version that would easily play within like a half an hour to 20 oh. minutes and would be really fun, I think. So there's number one. Cool. Definitely thumbs up. That would be... I love the mixing the uh, the scores and stuff and translating that over for a p- some type of a pool that would be associated with the game itself. It sort of leads up that, to yeah, the game. You know, you yeah. have these games that you play that sort of lead to the, the actual game I thought would be yeah, kind of cool. I think that's very cool. Thumbs up. Keeping on with the football theme, uh, I just got it as a gift and I certainly would pull it out anytime. The uh, <laughs> Tudor Electric Football would make for some hilarious uh, football fun. It, granted, these are all kind of two-player games, but what I'm imagining is having like game stations. You know, one person playing the Pizza right. Box football tournament, another person playing the, the Tudor Electric football. For those of you who don't know, um, it's funny because we did the kind of Sabudio table soccer thing. This is kind of the American Mer- little exactly. boy equivalent to Sabudio table soccer. It's a metal board that has like a little motor in it that makes the whole board vibrate. The board is basically a football field. You have little plastic guys on bases that kind of have these little... I don't know what to call them, little whiskers that the that the bases stand on. And when the board vibrates, of course, the pieces move all over the place. All the pieces are modeled after, you know, you have offensive linemen, you have running backs or whatever. Um, you It has a little, like, uh, felt football that you put in the, under the, you tuck it in the running back's arm, and then you turn the thing on and say go, and the guys go everywhere, and, you know, you have a little down and distance marker to mark off the things. There's actually even a quarterback that has a little flicker that you put the ball in and you and try to make (laughs) passes and you try to just, you know, if it donks into the guy, then that counts as a completed pass. Hilarious. And a kicker that you and you try to kick the ball. Just be hilarious fun. They make all 32 NFL teams. So you could do the NFL playoffs. You could do just the Super Bowl. You could do any of the above. I think it'd be awesome for a Super Bowl party. Yeah, that that has to get a thumbs up. I haven't played that thing for, what, 20-plus years. Yep. <laughs> I, I would love to play this again, especially at a Super Bowl party. Yep. <laughs> I, I think there would never be one moment when that game wasn't being played. Yep, yep. There would just be the constant <laughs> yeah, exactly, in the background exactly, of the game. <laughs> exactly. Great job. Second thumbs up. Okay, so this third one, I, you may not even know about this game. I don't know. When we did sell it to Game Preserve for a while, but it, it was in the piles of junk, so you may not have (laughs) noticed it. Um, It's called Pocket Football. Um, It was um, designed in 1992. Rene Vidmer is the author. Um, It was published because it's their books um, Ah. by AWV Publishing. Um, It's a two-player game, and it's about 20 minutes. So it's a light fun, again, with the idea that you know these are all informal parties because you're probably going to have people there that are not hardcore exactly. gamer-type people, but it might be football people as well or just people who are there for the fun and the ads. Um, you get two books. E- 
each book, they're like flip books. The front half of the book are offensive plays. The back half of the book are defensive plays. You can actually play it one of two ways. You can do it just completely random and just go, whoop, okay, this is my play. And the other person goes, whoop, and picks a, you know, just fingers out a page. And then you compare. And it will give you a number, kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure, that they cross-reference to another set of pages in the book that give you the result of the play. And you just have a little board that is just like a little cardboard strip that indicates, you know, the down and distance of the thing. And you just sit there and go, okay, third down, whoop, I'm going to do a long pass. Okay, I'm going to do a quarterback blitz or whatever. It's just hilarious and fun, and you know you can play it without all of us realizing that you're playing it. You could do it like as the Super Bowl is even being played. You could have people doing this, and it wouldn't even really be that distracting. So that's kind of like a filler game okay. that could go on. I don't even know that you know about that you're, game. You're actually not, right. I have never heard of that. It, it sounds really cool. I couldn't remember the name of it for long. I kept thinking it was Flip Football, and I could not find anything on it. And it's <laughs> Pocket, Pocket Football. Football, and they they're like little. Did you say when it was published? Books, 1992. So it's Fairly recent, okay. Um, but it's they're like little squarish type books, kind of thick because you've got you know a ton of those pages for the things, and then it shows you a diagram of the of the play on the one page, and then has this little cross referencing. That must have been a nightmare to figure out the cross referencing thing, but definitely cool. That's that sounds really fun. I definitely have to give that a thumbs up. I, <laughs> I think that'd be a hoot. Okay, so that's kind of the the football angle cool. of all those things could lead up any of those games. You could come up with, you know, you're playing a game of football, so you have these pool-type things that you could add into the Super Bowl. The next two are kind of more party-type games. You could play with any number of people, cool. um, and you could play with teams, but they're kind of either sports-related or ad-related with it being uh, the Super Bowl and the commercials. Oh, Couldn't yeah. leave that aspect out. So the first kind of party-type game is Rules of the Game. Oh. It's published in 2000. Uncredited designer, unfortunately. Uh, Hasbro is the publisher. It's They say two to six players, but it's really a team player because it's a trivia game. Uh, th- 30 to 45 minutes for each game. So this game is a, it's a sports trivia game, but it uses obscure rules from... Um, various sports, usually popular sports, but also some obscure sports as well, um, in different categories. The answers are generally in a yes or no or true or false manner, so they describe a situation, a wacky situation that happens (laughs) in a particular sports thing, and then it's up to you to decide whether the way it was ruled, you know, fair or foul, was the actual right way that it was, you know, whether the referee got it right or the referee got it wrong. The cool thing is because the answers are true, false, yes, no, you don't have to know anything about right. sports, and you could still kick butt at this game. But they're all really fun. I mean, the cards are really fun, and they're just like, that could actually happen, or <laughs> they do a good job of kind of giving a little background about that stuff. So that would be, sticking with the sports theme, a good game that any number of people could play. And you could even do it like in between the quarters or at the halftime or something exactly. like that. I, I like that game a lot. I've I've never actually played a whole game of that, but I've read several of the questions, and wow, you're right. They're just, I had no idea that that could ever happen. <laughs> so yeah, I'd definitely give that a thumbs up. I think that'd be, that would involve the whole group, and I think there's a lot of cool ways you could meld that with the game, too. That's cool. So lastly, involving the, the ads, gotta got to mention the commercials, since a lot of people oh, tune in just with just the commercials. Those, right. Last game is Adversity. Uh, it was published in 2003. There are three designers, Garrett Donner, Michael Steer, and Brian Spence. Uh, it's published right here in Indianapolis by Fundex Games. Cool. Great, 
great little game company based out of Indianapolis here. They say three to six players again. You could easily do it with teams. Um, and it's a 30-minute game, but you can basically just make it free form. So this game is really, really kind of unique. Um, you, you're secretly matching actual but wacky ad slogans from products from like bygone eras to a list of products um, that you flip over on each turn. Um, so you read your slogan aloud, and then the other players try to guess which slogan you've matched it up with. So <laughs> it might be something like, uh, it's the quicker picker-upper, and it might be, you know, uh, Viagra might be one of the, <laughs> the options, or, you know, the, there's all kinds of possibilities for humor in the oh. way. So it's a game where you're trying to get into the other person's head and figure out, okay, are they going to be stupid, or are they going to exactly. be serious, or how are they going to go? Um Totally informal. It's more about just having laughs than it is, you know, right. winning or losing. But the cards are hilarious, and the actual ad slogans are really funny, and they do a good job of actually telling you like where, where the ad originally cool. came from. So it's actually just fun to flip through the cards and see where the different ad slogans came from. So again, another kind of informal party game could play with any number of people. Um, there you go, number five. I think that's perfect. I think that, that's a. Pro I was wondering if you were going to hit that advertising angle <laughs> up because that is a big part of a lot of people that we know. That's a big oh, part yeah. of the game for them, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> another thumbs up. That's five. Good job. Yep. I'll. Uh, I'm. I might have a Super Bowl party with some of these games on yeah. this year, provided I'm not in Miami watching yeah, yeah. my Colts play. <laughs> exactly. If you're not in Miami, I better be invited to your party. <laughs> well, that's a given. Cool. <laughs> So, are you ready for your uh, I challenge? Am. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, this challenge actually comes from a listener again, cool. with a little slight little modification or addition by me. Okay. So, the challenge comes from Joel in Georgia. Um, he writes, "I'm a teacher. So, what games would you choose for a high school teacher to play in a class as a learning experience?" With the caveat being that if the principal shows up in the classroom, he or she would immediately see the educational value <laughs> of the game the students are playing. Uh, he say, he goes on to say, I'm an English teacher, but I'm not going to limit it to only games appropriate okay. for the English classroom. Um, so this is kind of my slight modification of, of his challenge. Your challenge is to find five games that can be used in the high school classroom that are educational without being Educational, educational, if you know what I mean. Uh, think of these five games as possibly being the foundation for a game collection that the teacher or the school could build on over time. I know we've kind of hit on this educational thing cool. with the, the math right. games in the past, but so this is a little broader okay. than that, and it's all high school. Age, cool. which we didn't have that caveat. I know we've kind of right, done a challenge exactly. dealing with schools before, with you, right. but I liked his his idea of how do you kind of get slip Ex under the radar exactly. with the these educational and, games. Uh, we're not playing a game. We're learning. Yes. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so so my, my only question is, obviously, in a classroom, you could have 15, 20 students. Um, so we're not talking every game is a game where every single one of them could be... Well, I think maybe in. no. I don't. I don't. I don't think it has to all be like because that would limit you to kind of okay. party games. Right. I would think maybe if you have several games, each okay. group could be playing a different, cool. you know, Perfect. normal size board game. Cool. So you you could include bigger ones if you wanted, but um, don't limit yourself just okay. to something that the entire class classroom has to play, has to play at the same time. Perfect. Um, so so okay. thank Joel for your pain and, and yeah, suffering yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> between looking, now and twenty one. I'm looking forward to pick these out because I wish that several of my teachers. Yeah, had used some of these games to informally 
you know, introduced me to several things that at the time I would have not been interested in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, cool. I'll be interested to, to see what you come up with, and we'll have to hear back from Joel to see what he thinks, too. Exactly. Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So we got a lot of feedback um, on a variety of subjects, um, not the least of which was our Sabudio table soccer segment. Um, Adrian in Perth, Australia, uh, the kind gentleman who sent us our own very own copy of Sabudio, he wrote in to say that um, he was very surprised that we didn't ask the obvious question, why is it called Sabudio? Which he's totally right. Yeah. We didn't ask that. How could question. we not have asked that? But he gives us the answer. So according to Kick to Flick to Kick by Daniel Tartarsky, which is a book on the history of Sabudio, cool. um, Peter Adolph was a keen ornithologist and had started a business in his spare time collecting and trading rare bird eggs. Okay. <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> when he developed his table soccer game, he wanted to call it the hobby. But the trademark office thought that that was too generic. His favorite bird was the hobby hawk, so he referred to the bird's scientific name, Falco Sabudio, to find the name for his Uh company. He also used the hobby hawk's head in the logo and trademark for Sabudio, thus proving that the history of Sabudio is just as cool as the game itself. That is freaky. (laughs) He also went on to say that, you know, we may start a new trend here with Sabudio, and we may find people with sets uh, coming out of the the woodwork, and we may have to start our own, like, the Spiel Sabudio Championship, uh, which, hey, we're all all for. Um, We also had a guy, um, Ian um, in Swindon, England, um, wrote in to to say that he was very glad to hear us talk about Subudio in our last episode. He says, uh, growing up in England in the early 1970s, every boy in my street had a copy, and we spent hours playing it every week. He also wanted us to know that that the company who makes Subudio made several other games of that similar kind of dexterity-based thing. They made a game called Five-A-Side Soccer, which he says was not that great. But they also had a rugby game and a cricket game, which were all (laughs) dexterity-based, which is really cool. They also made, it was a board game, not really a dexterity game, a game called Angling, which is all about fishing. Okay. I, he uh, has responded because I asked him a little more about it. He said, well, I remembered it being really cool, but <laughs> it's was... not as cool as I remember it being, <laughs> exactly. which I thought was kind of funny, but it still, still sounds and looks like a really cool little game. Um, the other thing that he pointed out was that um, they make different size balls for Sabudio, which I wasn't really oh, okay. aware of from looking at the pictures of the balls and the balls that Adrian sent were all the same size, but they uh-huh. make a smaller size ball ah. that he says he finds is easier and more maneuverable to, to shoot with. So oh, okay. that's just word to the wise. I, I cool. had no idea. So thanks for those little Sabudio Yeah, we uh, just have our one ball. Tips. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he sent us two. Oh, Matching the different colors. We do have a pair of balls. Cool. <laughs> it's always good to have a pair of Hell balls. Hell yeah. <laughs> all right, on to your... Uh, Okay, we got an email from Scotty in Mississippi, and if you'll remember, he's the one that uh, proposed the challenge for the wine and cheese thing that I had to take on. He said that Dave's recommendations were great. We gave him an enthusiastic thumbs up in each case. He also appreciated having the wits and wagers as kind of like an ongoing game that people could drop in and out of as they go, and he especially liked it because it was a game that they were going to play a week or so prior to that, so everybody was going to be familiar with it already. So I'm glad that worked out. Um... 
He said, the folks that attend our games will have just learned how to play everything the, the week before the wine and cheese thing. So he's planning on using a good two or three of the ones I suggested. And he's already, he said he's already spent a boatload of money this month on other stuff. <laughs> so he can't go out and buy them all. But uh, he is going to play one or two of them. So that's great to hear back from somebody yeah. with the channels. I'm glad they're going to use some of them. And after they play them, let us know, you know yeah, what, what you what think they of thought, them, yeah. if they worked out for your particular situation. That's cool. <laughs> Um, we had, we're getting a large listenership in, uh, Australia, another Aussie writing in David in Melbourne, um, wanted us to know, he says, I've been listening to all the episodes to date on an iPod while window cleaning, very informative, interesting, and amusing. Um, he wanted us to know that he's just started a game club in Melbourne, um, which you can find at eurogamesfest.com. Um, and he's burned a disc full of Spiel episodes and given them to the 20 members of the group as he thought it would benefit them very much. Yeah, spread the good word, <laughs> spread baby. Spread the good word. As many people as as, as can <laughs> sing the Spiel's praises, we'll, we'll take it. That's now, awesome. What I want to know is exactly how high up is he when he's cleaning these windows? <laughs> yeah. Is he listening to the Spiel while 30 stories in the air? I don't know if that's safe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we need to put a disclaimer on at the beginning. <laughs> that's um, the last thing he wanted to mention was that there's kind of an Australian equivalent to Gen Con um, called the Australian Games Expo that's held in June, um, and it's going to be June 2007 this year. Um, and he said it's not nearly as big as Gen Con, but it's the same kind of deal. So if you're into games and, and in Australia listening to us and you don't know about it, I would definitely check it out. Heck yeah. I would like nothing more than oh. to... Uh, be heading out to uh, Essen and and Australia and some places like this. We've got some cool plans for the Spiel in the next few years, and be it would great. be awesome to give you you all some reports from places like that. And and if things go right, you never know. We might just be on that on that path. So uh, thanks for letting us know about that, David. Yeah, that's and, neat. and spread the word. Burn yeah. burn us oh, yeah. as many times <laughs> as you want, and and we're happy to help you spread the game gospel. <laughs> uh, next. Got an email from John in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, wanted to let us know about Power Grid and the runaway leader problem that we had oh, right. thought that there might be. He says, I don't think there's going to be a runaway leader problem due to the turn order changes. The leader getting um, getting first pick on the power plants, but then last pick on buying resources and building cities really does make it difficult for the leader to run away and hide. And I think he's absolutely right, and I appreciate him writing in for that. He also has a little PS <laughs> yeah, on here that I think funny. we have. He said, my bet is the secret location of listener Dave is Milwaukee, and he's a graduate of the Milwaukee School of Engineering. <laughs> this is that wacky Dave <laughs> listener who I'm sure is still out there listening who sends us the uh, goofy guesses. <laughs> he could be right. You never could, know. You never I mean, know. he's in Madison. Maybe he's got inside information. That's true. Could be. Or it's just bad cheese. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Most likely bad cheese. So I don't think there is any bad cheese. Well, that's Go true. <laughs> People from out there may disagree with me, but <laughs> and then I think you're you're last on I've the docket the here. I've got, uh, got an email from Patrick in Sweden. Actually, I got a couple of them, um, and he wanted to write in and let us know that he actually had a chance to try out Justinian at Essen a while back with some friends, and unfortunately, they were very disappointed in the game. In fact, he said he would rather have played darts blindfolded. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of crazy. So, so that's not too glowing of a review there. <laughs> so um, we'll see what we'll see what happens. Uh, maybe we'll still be able to test out one of these on our own. But thanks for the heads up. I 
That yeah. might prevent me from going out and buying, <laughs> at least us buying our own copies of that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and he also made, um, an offer to do any trans, um, translations for us for the German stuff since we obviously run into a lot of, Information Issues. that needs yeah. to be translated. He offered to do that, which is wonderful. And I, I wrote back and wondering if he's going to require a title for his business and he could become the, the high translator, the high official translator to the spiel. Yes. I don't know whether he'll accept that title or not, but, uh, <laughs> so certainly, we're, we're willing to give it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Certainly if we have any, um, translations we want done, we'll fire them right off. I think that's awesome. Yeah. That's... We always run into, you know, things that we just don't quite you know, yeah. fathom since they're in the German language. So cool. Thanks. Yep. <laughs> That's with thanks for your contributions. Our, our mailbags always open. We always want to know what you think. Um, especially we've got some, some changes coming up here that I, before we put a lid on this that I want to discuss. Um, so there's going to be some big changes with the Spiel website in the next probably month or so. We're going to kind of do this as a, a dress rehearsal or a trial period here for the, the next couple weeks. I'm going to put a link on the, the regular Spiel site in the episode 20 part that you can click through and see the preview of coming attractions for what the Spiel is going to be all about. I'm installing a content management system called Drupal, which will allow um, the Spiel to have a blog-style comment system for e when we put up the show notes and announce each episode. It'll allow all you listeners out there to comment directly um, on the site about you know each episode individually. Um, we're, each, we're also going to have some forums on the site that um, you can give us suggestions for any of the different um, segments that we do. There's also going to be just kind of a community section so that listeners can talk to each other. There's going to be a section on uh, game gathering, so you may find that there are people who live near you who are looking for people to play games with. So we've, you've been clamoring for it for <laughs> months that you know you want more interactive excuse me, activity well, in the site, and I think this will help um, kind of foster that and bring the Spiel listeners into conversation with each other as well as with us. Right, that would be great. Um, there's going to be kind of a transition phase to get the old content from the old Spiel into the new Spiel, so it, the, the new and improved Spiel site may not go live completely for probably another month while I work out the kinks, but there'll be a link for you to look there, and you're Feel free to register and comment on the, the things. We're going to add polls for each episode with a different uh, sort of vantage point for each poll, which will be fun. And the last but not least, there's going to be uh, the ability for you all out there to support the Spiel if you want. Cool. Um, we certainly appreciate any and all support, Definitely. whether it's moral, financial, or just you contributing with your ideas to the show, because that's what really makes the, the spiel special and what makes it strong and, and growing. So just check that out and send us mail about what, you know, if you find features or if you see things that are broken, <laughs> let us know, because it's definitely a work in progress. But just a little heads up on some things that are going to be coming in the next uh, month or so. Um, kind of boring housekeeping stuff, but it, but important, and I think we'll add lots of new features to to the spiel as well as to the podcast that I think I think you all will like. But cool. let let me know. I lo I love to know. Um, we've blabbered on quite long enough. This episode has run <laughs> run long. I think it's just because we've had an extra week to, to plan and, and exactly. get info across to you all. So um, without further ado, thanks of course for listening. We we love it and hope you guys love listening to the show too. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You, you just have to play. play.
So remember, whether it's the turn of a card, the roll of a die, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You just have to play. <laughs> Take three. I wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> I did it right, didn't I? It was in turn of the... You, use the, you usually do die. Do Dice. I? Yeah. I thought you always did nope, the die. Nope, you start with the die and I go the turn of a card. Really? I went that roll of a die. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Take three. Okay.